friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And you know, Trey, everybody's kind of locked at home right now, you know, in the shutdown thing. I mean, we've, we've been in the tomb for months, but this is a new experience for a lot of people. Right. And something I'm noticing a lot of people are missing is the sports. Oh, you, you mean like the things with the ball that you throw or you hit? There's points? Apparently. Huh. Like, there was a whole month of madness that they missed out on entirely. Wow. I think it's May Madness. Oh, yeah, no, that's the, the, the Quidditch thing, right? Yeah, that's the thing. Okay. But, you know, it got, it got me thinking. Like, I posted a poll on the Tomb of Ideas Twitter the other day. I've been reading Infinity, Inc. for another podcast, which I can't name, due to a non-disclosure agreement. And it got me th- thinking that... Which is the better Roy Thomas World War II book? The Invaders or All-Star Squadron? And I put a poll on our Twitter page, and according to most people, the majority opinion is The Invaders. Although right now it is about 50-50. Interesting. But it got me thinking, you know, people are missing their sports and their brackets. You know it would be fun. What's that? A Roy Thomas bracket. Oh, are we talking specifically books that he's done, or are we talking characters he created or co-created? I think characters. Mm. Just like Roy Thomas creations battling each other until only one remains. So basically, a big chunk of the Marvel Universe from, say, 1970-something until somewhere in the mid-80s? Yes. <laughs> and then a good chunk of the DC Universe from about the late 1970s to the late 1980s. Right, right. Oh, yeah, because, you know, one of the weirdest things, and this is a tangent that we don't have to spend too much time on, but one of the weirdest things is the way that Infinity, Inc. deals with Christ's on Infinite Earths. It is weird. It, from from my understanding, I haven't read those issues, but that title really suffers. Well, I mean, because its whole premise gets literally wiped from existence. True. That that becomes a bit of a problem for continuing to tell stories. Eh. The characters that really endure from that book continue to exist in some form, but it that is a very specific wild time to to read because you have Roy Thomas really sort of lovingly developing and and extending the continuity of this alternate version of Earth at a moment in time when the company as a whole is saying no more alternate Earths. Oh, you know what's really weird is the fact that the current incarnation of Neil Gaiman's dream from his Sandman series is the offspring of two characters from that title. Yes. Yes. Because that uh, Daniel, right? Yeah, Daniel. And you wouldn't think that because, you know, you think of it as this, just this obscure title. But apparently, you know, Neil Gaiman's a fan. Yeah, and, and and that's something that throughout the Sandman title, like he was pulling all sorts of weird, obscure stuff, like um, 
like the characters from uh, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, and, and things like that. Yeah. It's... He's obviously has a weird love of, you know, American comic books that comes from, you know, sporadic distribution over in the UK. Yes. People sleep on the Roy Thomas DC stuff. It's real easy to lock in on his Avengers stuff and his Invaders stuff and really sort of focus on those because... I think partly because so many of those characters are now integral to the Marvel multimedia empire of movies and television, but don't sleep on that DC stuff because it is really good. It really is. Like, honestly, if I were voting in my poll, I would pick All-Star Squadron over the Invaders because I feel like All-Star Squadron had more room to progress its characters than Invaders did. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's sort of... Because Invaders has to always be World War II. Because if you progress beyond that, you're getting into territory that other books have already covered. Yeah, yeah. The Justice Society and, and All-Star Squadron has Infinity Inc. sort of as their sequel team. Like, they are the, the legacy team. And you can't really have a legacy team for the Invaders, because that's just the Avengers. So, listeners, let us know what you think. Would you like some kind of Roy Thomas bracket, Roy Thomas Madness, Roy Thomasoff? we got to figure out a title. <laughs> Not only would I want listeners to vote in whatever bracket matchups we get, but you know it would be fun if they could send us in audio segments describing how they see that fight going, in, going down. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. So especially if you have your own podcast you want to promote on our show and talk about, you know, you... You can send us audio, and we will put we will put it in somewhere. Absolutely, that's that's a pretty good idea. We should we should work on this. Besides, just hey, this just occurred to me just now. Let's go ahead and plan it on the show. <laughs> but yeah, it could be fun. So um, let's talk about Hellstrom Watch. Yeah. We've got just a few new items in Hellstrom Watch today because, as has been previously discussed. Hollywood is basically shut down right now. Yep. So nothing new on the Hellstrom show itself. It is still presumably in post-production on schedule to air at some point. But we do have a few other things. First off is just a rumor right now, but it comes from a variety reporter, so it's worth uh, discussing. And that is that WWE Raw Women's Champion Becky Lynch might be appearing in an upcoming Marvel film. Oh, we're starting with this one? Yeah, I'm going to start with this one. Okay, go ahead. So, um, it's not known exactly which which movie this would be, uh, although if I had to guess, I would probably say maybe Shang-Chi, the, the martial arts Marvel movie, because it's been suggested in other reporting that that movie might involve at least partially uh, a, a martial arts tournament of some sort in the grand tradition of kung fu movies. And so it would make sense for them to cast someone with stunt and combat experience for something like that. So, so that, that's something. And this comes up because Becky Lynch did just appear on the premium cable show Billions. Uh, and so it looks like she is expanding out into acting beyond just the, the wrestling shows. So, um, so it is a distinct possibility that this could happen. It's not confirmed by Marvel or by uh, the performer herself. But as I said, it's coming from a variety reporter, so it has, has some weight to it. The only word I understood in that whole story was Shang-Chi. <laughs> well, Becky Lynch is an Irish redhead who 
uh, is very good at beating people up. Oh, okay. I, I, I like redheads who beat people up. <laughs> I figured you might. <laughs> um, so next, and I'm, I'm sort of doing these in order of what seems to be importance. Um, next is an update on New Mutants, sort of. Okay. So it is possible that with all of the shutdowns and things, this movie might be going video on demand after all. Which we predicted a long time ago, but apparently it needed the pandemic to make it happen. Right. Now, it's worth noting, what we originally predicted was that it might go direct to Hulu or Disney+. Plus. It looks like they're not going that route. It looks like they're still wanting people to pay for it beyond just having a subscription. Because earlier in this week, a pre-order page for New Mutants went up on Amazon. Um, And then promptly disappeared. Yes, it was taken down very quickly. Apparently, Amazon jumped the gun a little bit. But it is worth noting that it looks like, based on that page that existed for a very short time, they are releasing New Mutants as a Fox Searchlight film rather than as a Disney film. Which makes sense, because it was technically one of the last movies in production under Fox. The question we need to ask, though, is, is this going to cause a backlash against Disney from chains like AMC, like what we saw against Universal. Because, I don't know if you've seen Trey, but AMC is pretty pissed off about Trolls right now. They are. They are. And potentially with, with some good reason, because there's a I think there's a difference between pushing movies into VOD out of necessity because the theaters are shut down, versus using this as an opportunity to cut theaters out of their profits altogether. And that's sort of the the discussion that's currently happening. That's the debate, is the movie theaters are saying, if you're going, once we are able to reopen, if you are going to continue releasing things digitally at the same time that they are supposed to be in theaters, then we're just not going to play along because you're taking money out of our pockets. And I can understand that from a business sense. The studios, for most, for at least the last couple decades have really been taking more and more of the money away from the theater chains. Like, contracts that are signed by these chains for the studios to to show their movies usually, especially for the opening weekend, heavily favor the ticket sales going to the studio rather than to the theater. If you've ever wondered why your drink and popcorn costs so much at the movie theater, it's because they're making almost nothing off the movie itself. No. And it's worth noting that there is relatively little risk to saying, hey, Universal, fuck you, because of the Trolls thing on the part of AMC. Mm -hmm. Because Universal's output isn't a significant percentage of the market. Right. Now, I can think of a handful of things that, that the theaters would probably prefer to be able to show. Like, I'm sure they would rather not have to say no to the next Fast and the Furious movie, because those usually do well. Um, right. And, and I figure they would rather not say no to the next Jurassic Park movie. Or the next Mamma Mia sequel. Sure, sure. Like, there's a handful of tent poles that they would probably like to have. And, and also, um, if I'm not mistaken, isn't the Halloween series now being distributed by Universal? It's entirely possible. I still haven't seen the new movie. Because it's a Blumhouse production. I'm pretty sure Blumhouse's current deal is with Universal for distribution. Okay, but my point here is, I don't think AMC can afford to go say fuck you to Disney. No, no, I don't think so either. Like, if you told 
Disney, hey, we're not going to show the next Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disney be like, I'm sorry, you said what now? <laughs> okay, it's going to go on to our premium streaming service, which, and here's the thing, Marvel movies, they can put it on their premium streaming service and still upcharge it, and yeah. still people will buy it. Yeah, that's true. That's, that, that is probably true. Like, uh-huh. not only do you have to have a Disney Plus subscription to watch this movie, but you also had to pay an additional fee to watch this movie on opening day. And a lot of people, myself included, would just, okay, here's my credit card. Yeah, I mean, if I, like, if it's the only way to see it, I would. I would pro. I am of what's probably a dying breed of people who prefer to see a movie with a crowd on a big screen. Like, I actually enjoy the theatrical experience setting aside caveats for how awful some people can be with their cell phones and things like that but like when everyone is actually there to watch the movie and you're together in a dark room on the biggest screen possible with the best sound possible that is just not something that you can recreate at home exactly because like watching in-game in theaters easily one of the best movie going experiences of my life Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, same with setting aside quality of the movie, because that, that's like almost not even what I'm talking about, but quality of experience, seeing The Phantom Menace on a big screen or The Force Awakens on a big screen, those movies where you've waited so long to see it and the anticipation has built, and because you're there opening night, everyone is there for that shared experience, it's just unlike anything else. Yeah, like, I still go back and watch reaction videos to certain scenes in Endgame. Mm-hmm. Because just the crowd going wild at those scenes, and we all know what scenes we're talking about here. I mean, we don't need to go into specifics, but, you know, sure. just listening to those crowds going wild is really gets your blood pumping and puts you right back there in the theater when you were watching it. Yeah, like exactly. I think I think the woman sitting next to me at Endgame was a normie. <laughs> so I think she thought I was having a mild heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> while watching in-game because she's just going to look at me like the fuck is wrong with you and I'm like do you not see what's going on up here it just uh, he caught the it, 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 on your left and oh, oh, oh. But yeah I, I, that is something I don't think that online streaming can get rid of right well and and I think as far as anyone is currently aware Disney is still committed to theatrical exhibition. They announced a new Star Wars movie that's going to be directed by Taika Waititi, and I think in that release they mentioned something about a theatrical Star Wars movie. Like, they made a point of using that word. And it's worth noting, with the Marvel stuff that's supposed to be coming out this year, they didn't rush it out. They delayed it. They pushed it back to a time when they think they'll be able to screen it. True. And they're not alone. Uh, Warner Brothers is is doing this as well. Like, uh, which, I mean, granted, some of this could be the work of Christopher Nolan because Nolan is very particular about the cinematic experience that is just part of like his deal as a director but uh, you know his, his next movie Tenet is this seemingly time travely heist kind of thing going on and uh, as always with Christopher Nolan movies the intended way to see it is in an IMAX theater because he shoots as much as possible 70 millimeter and uh he has made it very clear, and Warner Brothers has backed him up on this, that that movie will not release until it is able to release in IMAX theaters. So, let me ask you. Hmm? 
Do you think streaming is the death of cinema? No, I don't. And the reason I say that is because for longer than either of us has been alive, people have said that television was the death of cinema. I mean, you could argue that streaming is an extension of television. It is. It is. It it, it is about... I mean, it's basically on-demand, menu-based. You can pick what you want instead of waiting for something to just come on in a time slot. And so the delivery mechanism has changed. But ultimately, it's still... It's still television. And cinema, I think, will always evolve to offer you something that that in-home experience cannot offer you. Hmm. You know? So television comes out, and so movie screens get wider. They give you more picture. TVs also become wider. They, they give you more screen there. So suddenly you've got IMAX, and you've got RPX, and you've got AMC Prime, and all, all of these different formats to give you even bigger and even better sound. And they're giving you the recliners so you're, even, you're comfortable like you're in your home. Some of them even have heated seats, which is wild. Um, they're developing full menus so you can have a meal while you're watching the movie. Like, they're, they're, they're still experimenting. I'm not sure that any of those things are by themselves the solution, but we're in a point of transition, and the theaters that survive this will adapt. And the, the movie-going experience will still exist in some form. We spent a lot more time on this topic than I thought we would. <laughs> yes. Um, but getting back to where we started, the, the main point to make is that New Mutants probably going video on demand, um, which is what we predicted all along. Is that where we started? I'd forgotten. That is where we started. Uh, but, but right now we don't know specifically when because the pre-order page that showed up eventually disappeared. Um, but we have one more item in Hellstrom Watch, and it is by far the most important, most notable thing to talk about in this segment. And that is that we have official clarification from the studio on the official name for the Spider-Man connected movies that are not technically part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> and Go that, ahead, fill them. And that very official name... <laughs> that just rolls off the tongue and is so catchy <laughs> is the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters. <laughs> or as I have been calling it, Spunk. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters. Oh. So that's going to be your Morbius and your Venom and your Venom 2. And I guess if, if something like Craven happens, because I think that's that was one of the things that was mentioned as a possibility, all, all of those are the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters. So, so what do you think of that? I mean, it, it was good for a laugh. The thing <laughs> is, uh, just... Uh... Spider-Verse was sitting right there. Right. The Sony Spider-Verse. Oh, no. Uh, so, so so, the Spider-Verse movies are part of the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters. But what has been the most successful, exclusively Sony-produced aspect of their Spider-Man films? Venom? Oh, fuck you. <laughs> you know what? I had forgotten that movie existed. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it did well enough to it did well enough to have a sequel ready before Spider Verse. Fuck you very much. Because <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember this, James, but uh, there's going to be carnage. Anyway, thank you for listening to Tomb of Ideas. <laughs> I, if you want to contact us, you can reach us at Tomb of Ideas at. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for that, just so you know. Just tell them the comics. Okay. Today, we have three comics for you, and they are, I believe, all from March of 1974. Yup. We have The Frankenstein Monster number 9, Marvel Spotlight number 14, featuring Son of Satan, and Man-Thing number 3. So we'll be right back with Frankenstein number 9, right after these messages. For those of us who adore movies, the Church of Cinema is a loving place. However, there are times when we stray and sin against the celluloid. Every now and again, a great essential or classic film will pass us by, and a movie lover fears little more than being exposed in their shame. You call yourself a movie lover, but you haven't seen Citizen Kane? But have no fear, fellow brothers and sisters worshipping at 24 frames per second. On the Cinema Shame podcast, James David Patrick hears to the confessions of the penitent cinephile. And in hearing these confessions, we fellow movie buffs and potential sinners shall also achieve grace. So subscribe and download the Cinema Shame wherever you achieve your podcast transcendence. And remember, only the penitent shall pass. It's alive! After a hard day in the lab, I like nothing more than a cold beer and a couple of videos. Bob liked it too. Yes! And now I can really kick back with Miller Lite and Genuine Draft in Halloween costumes. And a special offer on a Frankenstein and Dracula dual pack from MCA Universal Home Video. Wherever you scream for Miller. We need to unearth a few more cases. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first issue this episode is Frankenstein number 9, The Vampire Killers. Cover date on this one is March 1974. Writer is Gary Friedrich. Artist is John Buscema. Inker is John Verporten. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist is Glynis Ween. Editor is Roy Thomas. As villagers burn the Frankenstein monster at a stake, elsewhere in the town, Dracula attacks and drains a pretty young maiden. Alerted by the young woman's screams, the villagers abandon the creature, who uses the opportunity to escape from his fiery fate. The villagers find their attempts to confront the Lord of the Vampires useless, and the monster tells them that he will put an end to the Prince of Darkness, doing one good deed for humanity before his death. In the cave who's in the cave where the monster found Dracula last issue, however, he finds not Dracula, but the beautiful vampiress Carmen, who attempts to feed on the monster. The patchwork powerhouse manages to stake the undead beauty, but the mixture of his blood and the vampire's bite has rendered him mute, just as Dracula appears. Outraged at the death of his comely servant, the two terrors tussle. The Frankenstein monster outwits the vampire, though, throwing him out of the mouth of the cave into the light of the dawning sun. With the vampire weakened, the monster stakes Dracula, reducing him to bone and ash. As the monster stands over his vanquished foe, another figure enters the cave, saying the creature has been looking for him. Vincent 
Frankenstein. So we have the conclusion to what is now our second Dracula crossover. Yes. How do you think this compares to the the werewolf crossover now that we have all of both of them? You know, I was just about to ask you the same, and honestly, the ending was better than the beginning for this one. Yes. We, we talked about last time how both parts of the werewolf story were very good, that the first one does a really great job of setting all the pieces in place, and then the part two sort of gives you the conflict that you wanted. This one, the setup was not so good. No. It, it said it was kind of lame. The fight at the end here, though, is good. It is. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a cop-out that the monster doesn't get to speak at all during the fight. True. And I'm really curious of what the logic was there. Yeah. Like, I feel... Because at first it was like, oh, this is another example of the writer and the artist being on different pages. But no, it kind of makes... You know, it just it's just weird. It is. It is. And, and the, the, art, the art shows him not necessarily getting bitten. Like, you see her leaning in, and then the next panel is her throwing her aside. Like, I wasn't expecting, you know, a philosophical debate between Dracula and Frankenstein monster in the first place. So, what's no, the point? No, that would have been incredibly faithful to the Mary Shelley novel, because that's, <laughs> that's the monster's whole deal in that book, is, like, quoting uh, Paradise Lost and, and musing about his existential reality. And I'm wondering, is it be, is it so he can't have a conversation with Vincent Frankenstein next issue? Mm, that 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 is possible. It could be set up for what's going to come. Which, I mean, I don't imagine. See, as a counterpoint to the Dracula Frankenstein monster encounter, I'm not imagining there's going to be some kind of smackdown dragout fight between Franken the monster and Vincent Frankenstein here. Right. For one thing, Vincent Frankenstein goes and seeks him out. Right. Which I have to give the guy kudos on, you know? It's, you, you don't, you hear a monster's looking for you, you don't go, oh, well, I better go find him. Especially the monster that hunted your ancestor to the literal ends of the earth. Yes. So, it's interesting. Like, at, I mean, if we're going back to the Mary Shelley novel, at no point does Victor Frankenstein man up and go to find the monster. No, it is a series of, of rejections where he over and over again refuses to take responsibility for his actions. Yes, to the point where he goes and escapes to the Arctic and the monster still finds him. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, you have a, you have a flip here, you have the Frankenstein family member going to find the monster, and I gotta give him props for that. Vincent, you know, it might just be the jump, the square jaw jump and some artwork here, but he seems like a stand-up guy. Yeah, yeah, he... he uh does not look like a villainous character necessarily, and that could change. But uh, but right now, I will say, this issue left me ready for the next one. Oh yeah, and this might be the first Frankenstein that's done that, past the original issues they adapted in the novel. And it's interesting how we talked about with the Werewolf by Night crossover, the end of the second part of that one, even though it was in um, the Werewolf by Night book, it, all it really set up was the next issue of Tomb of Dracula. But here, I guess because we're in the past, so there's no next Tomb of Dracula to set up for, it actually is able to come back around and continue the story of the title character. Although it's worth noting that Dracula gets staked again. Yes, although they're, they're getting creative in giving us different variations on it. So this time, it's not just that he's staked. It's that his sunlight and 
and then he is pinned down with the stake. Okay, here is an interesting idea. Should the crucifix have worked for the Frankenstein monster in this scene? So, that is... It depends on what kind of vampire lore we are paying attention to. Um, There are some traditions where the power of the crucifix comes from the faith of the person wielding it, and so that could be a problem for the Frankenstein's monster. Also, the fact that it's not even really a crucifix. It's just two sticks put together. But you may not remember this, but my first introduction to the Marvel Dracula was his appearance in X-Men. Okay. Specifically X-Men Classics. Right. So I'm not sure what issue of X-Men this comes from, but there's a scene where Wolverine tries to hold off Dracula by forming a, cru- a crucifix with two of his claws. Mm-hmm. And Dracula's like, Psh, that won't work on me. You have no faith. Smack. Right. But then, of course, Nightcrawler's like, well, what about me? And makes it with two pieces of wood, and it's like, ah, crap. <laughs> right, right. So, like I said, it's, there's that is definitely a tradition where... It is, the power comes from the faith of the person holding the object. And that, that also comes up in other vampire stories. It's a thing in the Stephen King book, Salem's Lot, where a character who has lost his faith, like, initially is able to use the cross, but the power fades the, the, longer, the, vamp- the longer he tries to hold it. So, and I guess this is early enough in their development of specific the specific Marvel vampire lore that they haven't quite figured that out yet. Also, I, I just doubt that Chris Claremont or whoever was going back and rereading the Frankenstein monster run in his preparation for using Dracula in the X-Men. Probably not. That, to be honest, dear, he, he probably wasn't. He might have gone back to some Tomb of Dracula, but I doubt he looked at the other crossovers. Almost certainly not. I mean, Chris Claremont is working for the company at this point. Yes, yes, because we've, we've, we've discussed several of his prose pieces, yeah. Yeah, but he's an editorial assistant, so... Right. It's, it, it, like you said, it is unlikely he's going to remember a story from the, at that point, failed Frankenstein series from a few years earlier. Right. Right. Because we are past the halfway point on the series, I believe. We are, well, we are at the halfway so. point. Okay. This, is issue, this is issue nine, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're at the exact halfway point. Oh, fun. Um, so I will say, with since we're looking at the, the Dracula death scene, I do like the very kind of old-school EC Comics melting effect on his face as the sun takes effect. It reminded me of the first Christopher Lee Dracula. Yeah, yeah. Especially the the uncut version that, that got re-released more recently, where where there's a little more of the the, the transformation as he dies. Yep. So, so yeah, that good fight, good finish to the fight. Um, I do miss Plug. I, I still miss Plug on this book. Yeah, although John Buscema does not do bad work here. No, and and especially the fight scene stuff is very much in his wheelhouse. Yes, and his Dracula is very good, where I think, like, Plug's Dracula maybe was a little lacking. Yeah, that's that's fair. The, the Plug version of Dracula always seemed a little bit off-model. Yes, maybe a little bit too much Vincent Price or some other person. Right, right. And... But I, but I think the, the art overall in this book is, is quite good, um, especially the action sequences, and really, the action never lets up in this issue. In fact, going back for a second, there's a there's a bit of Dracula on 16, where mm-hmm. he's just leaning up against the wall, watching Frankenstein kiss Carmen goodbye. That's just like, 
it, it, it's a fantastic Dracula. And it's that, like, like that could be a panel out of Tomb of Dracula. It's real good. Yeah. Just like the swagger in that pose, just like, damn, son. Yeah, that's really good. And also the the opening splash with the monster tied to the stake with fire surrounding him is also really good. Yeah. Well, no one ever said that John Basim was a bad artist. Let's no, be honest this is, this here. this is true. I guess we should not be surprised that the art is good on this. Uh, I will say I was... Like, the villagers sort of become a non-entity by, like, page five or six. <laughs> well, yeah, they get a verbal smackdown from the Frankenstein monster, and I think they're just kind of like... They crawl under a rock or something after that point. Because he just sort of shames them all, and they go away. <laughs> <laughs> There's a weird scene in there where... Undertaker gets strained. Oh yeah, yeah, where Dracula steals the coffin and and is like, I don't need your blood. And then the scene ends with him killing him anyway. Yeah, I'm not quite sure the reason for that scene. No, well, he to- so so he needed the coffin because they made a point of showing the coffin get smashed in the last issue. But he doesn't end up using it. Right. Well, because he dies. Yeah, there really wasn't a need for that scene. Well, except that he doesn't know he's going to die. Like, I, I imagine that when Dracula is standing there at the entryway to the cave, like, he has left the coffin just outside. Like, he, he was on his... He was about to drag the coffin in. No, what I'm saying, narratively, there is not a reason for that scene unless it's going to be there. Like, it's it's Chekhov's coffin. Sort of. I mean, the, the idea is that Dracula is going back to the cave to rest. He knows he no longer has a coffin because the monster smashed it. So he stops to get a coffin on the way back because otherwise he won't be able to rest because he has to have a coffin to put his Transylvanian soil in. And does it, but does it need to be explained why he's going back to the cave? Um, I guess because you have the ticking clock of the sun about to come up. I I'm a little more forgiving of that. I don't, I don't think, I don't think we needed a whole page for that. Well, my thinking is it's, it's there to meet, meet page count. That's entirely possible. But because you could show him just stealing a coffin in, like, a panel or two. Or even just show him carrying the coffin with a thought bubble about uh, having taken it while the Undertaker slept or whatever. Like, you could have accomplished it without wasting a whole page on it. I will grant that. Maybe. But, you know. I, I still think it's in there to make page count, so... It's it's probably padding out the story, yeah. Yeah. Well, just, I feel like if you're going to pad out the story, you add another page of fight scene. See, my thinking is the fight scene was already completed, and they realized they weren't at page count yet. Right, so they added one more page, yeah. Yeah, because you'll notice this, this page doesn't connect to any other page in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, because we... The page before it has the monster walking away from the villagers, and then the page after it has a very similar shot of the monster with his back to us walking into the cave. Like, those two pages look like they ought to go together. Yes. So, honestly, I think that this page is put in at the end because you're like, hey, we're a page short. Yep. We, we're, we're at 23 page. We're at 22 pages. We need 23. Yep. Yeah, I can see that. It That makes sense. And... I don't think it necessarily hurts the story. It's just an odd diversion. Yeah, just just an observation on my part. Um, but yeah, no, it was fun. I, I I will say I still think that the werewolf crossover is better in that it actually sticks the landing in both issues. Yes, it does. 
And part of why it's able to do that is they set up for the crossover before the crossover started. Like, we got the setup for it in the previous issue of Tomb of Dracula with the, the train ride. Whereas here, the first issue of the crossover is a bait and switch because Dracula does not show up until the final page. But I think part of that is they are two bigger name titles. Sure. Because Tomb of Dracula, it, you know, because they have that Tomb of in there, is a Marvel heavyweight title. Yes. And of course, Werewolf by Night is a heavyweight Marvel title. Marvel right. horror and, title. And, and Frankenstein is definitely at least second tier at this point. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't... If it was top tier, they wouldn't have had to change the title. True. You know? Like, that, that, that was a revision that probably happened because they thought it would affect sales. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's a fine issue. Yeah, good cro- I will say... Good, good ending to crossover. I will say, um, the letters page, general consensus, agrees with what I said a little while ago. Most of the letters in at one point or another say they miss Plug. But I really enjoy Basima's artwork here. I do too. And and they are they praise Basima. They do that. Like the, the letter writers especially praise his action, but they miss the sort of weirdness of Plug's designs. We do get a nice little ad here for the Werewolf by Night Tomb of Dracula crossover though, by the way. Yeah. The Marvel Age of Monsterdom. I like that. Yeah. Uh, also, we've got a Marvel value stamp for Son of Satan. Yep, which I've posted to the Twitter page a few days back. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, like, like you were saying, a fine single issue. As a two-parter, it's not quite as solid as The Werewolf by Night. But, but again, that's probably due to this being just a smaller comic at the time. And also the, the, the time jump. Werewolf by Night has the benefit of being set in the present. Yeah, it does. This book has to restore Dracula to a certain status quo because it's set so far in the past. What are you talking about? Dracula's dead. There's no way he's coming back from that. <laughs> um, didn't he die in the flashback in the Werewolf by Night issue, too? Anyway, we'll be right back with our next issue. It's Marvel Spotlight number 14 featuring the Son of Satan. The Too Old, Too New Podcast. A show dedicated to reviewing books from the bins and recent reads. I'm Bill. And I'm Seth. Be sure to listen to us on our Too Old, Too New Comic Book Podcast, where we talk about two old comic books and two new comic books every episode. Comic book fans don't miss out. Too Old, Too New is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play. Behind its wall of beautiful teeth, Tuthopolis is under constant siege by the Cavity Creeps. We make holes and teeth! Cresty, look! Crest team? The Cavity Creeps are coming! We'll fight them with Crest's fluoride! Arrgh! Crest! Yay! Watch trees, see your dentist, and fight the Cavity Creeps like the Crest team! Fight cavities with Crest! Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our next comic is Marvel Spotlight number 14, Ice and Hellfire. Cover date is March 1974. The writer is Steve Gerber. The artist is Jim Mooney. Inks are by Sal Trapani. Letters by Dave Hunt. Colors by Petra Goldberg. And the editor is Roy Thomas. It is 5 a.m., the Hour of the Wolf, at stately Hellstrom Manor as an unfortunate milkman is utterly and permanently traumatized 
by the arrival of Damon Hellstrom in full Son of Satan garb in his flaming chariot pulled by demon steeds. He sends the horses to their resting place in the lake and rushes inside as Daybreak brings transformation back to his human form. Damon agonizes over his existential problems before drifting to sleep, only to be awakened by a special delivery at the door. A paranormal psychologist, Dr. Catherine Reynolds, wants his expert help in assessing the nature of a haunted communications building at Gateway University in Missouri. In addition to the usual flying books and other objects, the janitor claimed to have seen a humanoid creature made of ice wandering through the building. Most recently, the entire building appeared to erupt into icy blue flames. Damon takes the case, wondering privately if it could be the work of Ichthalon, a demon who has been dormant since medieval times. Hellstrom arrives and agrees to help on the condition that he be given the freedom to handle the problem his way with no interference from Dr. Reynolds or anyone else at the university. He spends the rest of the day studying his foe in arcane texts, and as night falls, he transforms once again into the Son of Satan. Using his satanic trident, he flies to the haunted building, and before entering, burns an Ankh symbol into the stone to prevent any demons from escaping. As Hellstrom investigates, the ice creature emerges from the floor and takes him by surprise. He pulls Hellstrom through the floor to the ice world of Ichthalon, leaving only the Hellforged Trident on the ground. His foe, a servant of Ichthalon, summons more ice creatures to attack the Son of Satan, and the cold begins to weaken him. Suddenly, Ichthalon himself appears and traps Hellstrom in a giant ice cube. Hellstrom concedes temporarily that he has been defeated, and Ichthalon reveals that his legions were summoned deliberately by a professor at the university. Damon tries to escape, but even his hellish flames freeze before they can affect his icy prison. Meanwhile, Ichthalon and his minions return to the communications building, but they are unable to leave due to the Ankh that Hellstrom left behind. Just then, against Hellstrom's instructions, Dr. Reynolds and the janitor arrive, and the janitor immediately wipes away the Ankh symbol with his mop and bucket. The ice creatures emerge again, but Dr. Reynolds finds the trident where it was dropped and brandishes it against the demons. Her contact with the weapon allows Hellstrom to use his satanic powers to lock onto the trident psychically and teleport through dimensions to its location. The fight spills out onto the college grounds, and the ice demon takes Dr. Reynolds hostage. Damon vows to surrender in order to save her life, but as soon as she is free, he attacks again, destroying the creature, revealing that as the son of the deceiver, it is his privilege to lie. The fight finished, Hellstrom slaps Reynolds for removing his unk, and says they can discuss his fee in the morning before flying away. So... I don't think I like this issue. It starts okay. Yeah, it starts fine, and then it turns into a Thor story. So, so here's the thing. Here, here's the weird thing about Son of Satan, I think, at least as he exists right now. And, and I say as he exists right now because they actually hint in the letters page that they're about to introduce some changes to the book that will affect his personality. But as he exists right now, Son of Satan, on the one hand, is kind of a reverse Thor in that Thor is constantly trying to impress his dad, Odin, in order to be deemed worthy again. And Son of Satan is, like, rebelling against his father because of the hellish powers that he inherited. And both seem to draw immense power from 
a weapon that they carry and that came from their father. So yes, the Thor comparison is apt. What's weird is that this story starts out as a Doctor Strange story and then turns into a Thor story. Okay, but you felt that too, right? That this was a Thor story? The second half, yes. The first half, I think, is a Doctor Strange story. Okay. Um, Because you've got weird, arcane, paranormal guy who has a reputation for getting rid of supernatural stuff, being contacted and summoned to help with a supernatural problem. Like, that setup is pure Doctor Strange. Like, that that's early Steve Ditko Doctor Strange. Yes. But then, as soon as he goes into the haunted communications building, it becomes a Thor story. And what's his name? Ichthalon might as well be a frost giant. Oh, definitely. Like, I feel like I've read this story before with frost giants. Probably. And something that isn't revealed in the story is... Who summoned them? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it is revealed in dialogue that a professor at the university did it, but then that's it. Now, I'm guessing maybe that will be in the next issue. May chance. Because it looks like they're setting up for this, this paranormal psychologist character to continue appearing. Which, I, I have my notes here, you know, this feels like a Thor story, except that... Damien Hellstrom is much more of an asshole. Yes, yes. Which you see that here when he slaps the professor. Oh, that's awful. Like that I cringed on that last page. It's pretty bad. It's real bad. Cause he yells at her for breaking the seal and coming into the house. But here's the thing. If she hadn't done that, you would have died in the ice world. Right. Not only that, she's not even the one who removed the onk. The janitor did it. And she's the one saying, hey, maybe that's not a good idea. Yep. So she gets slapped for something that she didn't even do. Yep. The only explanation I can say for it is they want to show that Damon Hellstrom is not your usual superhero. Yeah. And for what it's worth, Catherine Reynolds does continue appearing in comics. Okay. In fact, according to the, the Marvel database... Her most her last appearance was Legion of Night number two in October of nineteen ninety one. Oh, okay. I didn't know there was a title called Legion of Night, but okay. <laughs> it was uh, looks like it's kind of a, a Legion of Monsters. It, it's a Steve Gerber joint. Okay, so I'll I'll probably enjoy it when I read it. Looks it looks like it's a bunch of secondary characters from the Marvel horror books. Jennifer Kale's in there too. Okay. Uh, fin Fang Foom. So we're definitely shows up. Ooh. But yeah, so so she has some longevity, at least up to the horror renaissance of the 90s. I don't know. I just expect better from Steve Gerber. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, you can see the difference, though, between a premise that he seems really into, like Man-Thing, we'll get there, versus something like Son of Satan, which it seems like he just kind of got stuck with. I'm surprised that we don't have Hellstrom crossing over with Man-Thing if he likes Man-Thing so much in order to make him like being saddled with Hellstrom. Like, it also, it seems to me that, especially given Gerber's particular sort of spiritual bent in in his other comics, like the, the very specific kind of, like, morality and spiritualism that he seems to prefer, it seems like the only way he knows to write Hellstrom is as a jerk. That, mm. that that being the son of Satan means he has to always at least be a little bit of a jerk. Mm. And it's funny because early on, 
right after he transforms, in, this is about, well, it's maybe halfway through the issue, when he transforms back into Son of Satan, he muses to himself, I shall never cease to marvel at how total is my transformation. And like, no, the transformation is that you take your shirt off and put on a cape and you act like more of a jerk than usual. Yeah. I laughed pretty hard at the transformation from uh, Hellstrom, from Son of Satan back into Damon Hellstrom. It's at the uh, bottom of, like, the third page, I think. Like, it, it's the, it's right after the, the big splash, or the, the big spread of, of him in the chariot. Um, and it's just, like, a little insert. It's not even a whole panel. It's just a little... It's a series of portraits of Son of Satan transforming back into Damon Hellstrom. And literally all that's happening is the cape is disappearing. And a shirt's appearing. Right. Which is just funny to me. I'm sorry, but it is. It's definitely not a Mike Plug transformation scene. No. Well, because they didn't actually bother to visually distinguish Son of Satan from the human Damon Hellstrom. No. He literally just puts on a cape and acts like a jerk. Looking, though, I do see that when Steve Gerber takes over Defenders, Hellstrom does join the team. He does, yes. And that's I, I, that's sort of the beginning of his progress into becoming more of a superhero character. So maybe Gerber doesn't hate him as much as we think he does. Yeah, or maybe it's not so much that he dislikes the character, but he dislikes the sort of premise or, or overall story arc he got saddled with. Perhaps. It'll be interesting to see this new direction if and when it comes. Yeah, because they're, they're already teasing it. This is the response to the first letter on the letters page. But uh, in their response, they say, We've already begun making certain subtle subtle alterations in Damon's personality to lay the groundwork for some rather monumental changes that will occur next issue. But don't go away mad. We appreciate all the good words you had for our first Son of Satan effort, and we promise if you'll stick around for an issue or two, you'll be thoroughly delighted with what we have in mind for the future. Oh, also, just worth noting on the letters page, another Marvel value stamp, this time Dracula. Yep. This one not cut out of my book. <laughs> so yeah, it seems like there is a through line. There, there's a, a development of the character that's happening, but we're at a point right now reminds me of early Johnny Blaze. Also, these ice demons are goofy. Yes, they are. They are very good. They look like villains from like Hanna-Barbera cartoons, but not good. But not a good Hanna-Barbera cartoon. They look like villains from a toothpaste commercial. Yes. Yes. Like, like, like personified versions of plaque or something. Like, they look like, you know, creatures put into, like, a promotional comic <laughs> that won't scare kids too much because this, this book is given, being given away free with, like, your toothbrush or your anti-drug program. <laughs> they are the most generic of unthreatening, goofy-looking villains. And it's also weird that there's two different kinds. Like, there's the crystalline-looking ones that are, like, giant ice cubes. And then there's the ones that look more like demons, but they're not colored in. Nope. So, like I say, the the setup is fine. Like, I, I'm cool with the idea of Son of Satan as paranormal investigator for hire. That's fine. It's, sure, it's basically Doctor Strange, which is also basically Brother Voodoo, which might be why some of these characters aren't as long for the world in their solo books, is maybe Marvel doesn't need three guys with the same premise. But if you were to ask me which one's the better book, I would say Brother Voodoo a mile away. Absolutely. If we're, I mean, setting aside Doctor Strange, because he's not going anywhere, because he's a bigger deal. Like, yes, yeah. if I had to pick between Son of Satan and, and Brother Voodoo, I would pick Brother Voodoo. 
And it's like they're trying to split the difference between a Doctor Strange or Brother Voodoo and something like Ghost Rider. And and I don't know that that they haven't found the sweet spot between those two ideas yet. No, it's, it's although now I want to put a post on the Twitter being like Brother Voodoo or Son of Satan. Tell us which one you prefer. <laughs> so. I mean. I would say that history has shown that for a while it was probably touch and go, but I think the recent history has shown Brother Voodoo to have a little more longevity. Yep. Although, I, um, Son of Satan is in that Strike Force book, the one that's that's mostly horror characters. Hmm. But anyway, they're both still around and kicking, so like I guess they have their audience, but I would much rather read a Brother Voodoo story than a Son of Satan story. At least, at least based on the versions we have right now. So we should probably move on. We'll be right back with our last issue for the episode, Man-Thing number three, right after this message. December 1933. You'd expect Chicago to be cold, but not this year. It's hotter than a kiss between Harlow and Flynn, and just as thrilling. Trouble's blowing in the Windy City. Capone might be in the big house, but even a half-wit knows full well Al didn't leave the picture. But that's not stopping his lieutenants from squabbling over the scraps, and it sure as hell ain't stopping the other gangs from trying to knock Capone's outfit down a few pegs. Any palooks with some Tommies and attitudes are grabbing at that pie like a fat kid at Thanksgiving. But there's something brewing in Chicago's shadows, and it's not that next batch of bathtub gin. No, this is something that bites a lot harder and leaves a mark that won't heal anytime soon. My name's E.I. Wick, and I want to tell you about four palooks just trying to beat the breadlines and survive the day-to-day. But life's got other plans for this Private Jane and her three friends. To hear their story, then slide your feet to the dark side of the street and visit gunforhireap.com. That's gun with two ends. Gun for Hire. A Deadlands Noir actual play from Fear the Boot. for Burger King, I am proud to announce that we have just changed the Whopper. Hey, you in a suit. You in a lot of trouble. I know you're all behind us on this. I like the Whopper the way it was, fool. The new Whopper has more beef than ever. More beef than Big Mac or Wendy's single. And it beat them both for best taste. More beef? Better taste? The new Whopper. More beef than Big Mac or Wendy's single. And winner for best taste. Okay, fool. It's good. (laughs) I'll let you live. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas and our last issue for this episode, Man-Thing number three, Day of the Killer, Night of the Fool. Cover date on this one, is, as in all our issues this week, is March 1974. Writer is Steve Gerber. Artist is Val Myrick. Inker is Jack Abel. Letter is Gene Simic. Colorist is Linda Lesman. Editor is Roy Thomas. In the aftermath of last issue... Man-Thing demolishes the shed that was almost his tomb as F.A. Schist and his cronies look on helplessly. A mile away, the beleaguered Richard Rory and his new main squeeze, the former biker chick Ruth, say goodbye to the remainders of the biker gang from last issue, having made their peace. As the bikers depart on the highway that leads out of the swamp, however, they are confronted by a strange masked figure in a cavalier hat and spandex. The figure pulls a gun on the bikers and demands to know the location of Richard Rory. Unwilling to snitch on their new friend, the masked figure tells the bikers they are fools, and as he is the fool killer, kills them with his strange gun. Shortly afterwards, 
The fool killer shows up at the dock as F.A. Schist recovers from his encounter with the Man-Thing, handing the businessman a card and advising him that he is next on his kill list, after Richard Rory and the Man-Thing. Later, in the swamp, the fool killer stalks the Man-Thing, but as he does, he spots a helicopter flying overhead. Thinking it is Schist trying to escape his fate, the fool killer uses his fantastic firearm to shoot down the aircraft causing it to crash land in a swamp. After the crash, though, the fool killer realizes that the occupants were not Schist and his cronies, but an innocent family escaping a nearby flood. The fool killer watches a horror as a congregation of alligators attack the family, only to be deterred by the sudden appearance of Man-Thing. After some old-fashioned gator-swinging action, fool killer begins to doubt if one who defends innocence so savagely could really deserve his wrath. Yet, as the Man-Thing approaches the masked man, Fool Killer fires his gun in a panic, killing the Man-Thing. That's that good Gerber weirdness that I like. Yeah, it is. Oh, that was just such a good issue after the rest of this stuff. On the cover, they call this the most startling swamp creature of all, which feels like a swipe at Swamp Thing. Not only is it a swipe at Swamp Thing, it's especially clever because at this point... Swamp Thing was being printed every other month, and so March 1974, there was not an issue of Swamp Thing. <laughs> they, there was a February and there was an April. Nice. So, of course, if they were going for a Swamp Thing issue, and they were like, hey, I want Swamp Thing, the guy working the newsstand, he only sees the top of these books, so he sees Swamp Creature, and he sees Man-Thing, and says, ah, that's still what they're looking for, and he hands them Man-Thing instead. Yep, yep. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. That's good stuff. Yeah, the very, very clever marketing. <laughs> I always find the marketing methods used in these to be really interesting. Yeah, well, it's even, and it's it's a tradition that continued well into the modern era. I mean, think about this: uh, Todd McFarlane leaves Marvel and creates his creator-owned character for Image, which, and what is Todd McFarlane known for? He's known for Spider-Man, right? Yep. So he creates a character called Spawn, whose mask looks an awful lot like Spider-Man's mask, and who's often surrounded by chains that kind of look like webs. And if you're going alphabetically, because a lot of times, especially in comic shops, the books will be alphabetical, if you're going for the S's, you're going to get to Spawn right before you get to Spider-Man. Yeah, it's the same way, like, you know, if Justice League's hot right now, you're going to launch a book called Justice Fighters. Right. Which has right. nothing to do with Justice League or anything like that. But it comes before L in the alphabet. Yep. So, you know, or if you if you send mom and dad to the to the newsstand and say, hey, pick me up a copy of Justice League, it's the same way that, you know, those mockbusters happen. Oh, yeah. Where yeah, like the Asylum stuff. Not, yeah. Or the stuff that looks just like Frozen but isn't Frozen. Yep. So, you know... Little, little 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 girl sends grandma to the store to get that movie with the ice princess and she comes in with you know ice ice princesses too and it's <laughs> like this isn't frozen but it has an ice princess sweetie well especially when one when the the real deal is being charged you know the the disney premium price and then the knockoff is like the budget friendly price yep uh, a whole genre dedicated to tricking grandmas <laughs> Yep. So, getting into the the meat of this issue, we have a brand new antagonist here. 
Yeah, we do. This is... And, and Fool Killer is a character with a pretty long legacy, which continues all the way through to the present day, but I don't think it's this version. Like, Gerver kept tweaking no. and revising the Fool Killer concept over his lifetime, but this is the original Fool Killer. Fool Killer 1, if you will. Yep. In fact, he, he becomes a fairly major force in the Marvel Universe. It... it Correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't that fool killer who kills Gene DeWolf? No, she's killed by the Sin Eater. Sin Eater, okay, I get this, I get this too mi- yeah. mixed up. But, fool killer does appear in some Spider-Man stuff. And in yep. fact, after this Man-Thing run, the only appearance by fool killer one is a flashback in an issue of Spider-Man. Okay. And, and then Gerber introduces other versions of the fool killer one of which continues to this day, because there's one of the versions of fool killer ended up joining Deadpool's team of mercenaries for a while. You know, there was that time when Deadpool had a team, and the whole team was just people wearing different colored versions of his outfit. Wild. Uh, and one of them was Slapstick, the the character whose power is that he's a cartoon. And the and one of the others was Fool Killer. Fool Killer reminds me a lot of Madcap. Yes. Yes. I, I can see that. They look very similar. Yeah, that, that's the Captain America villain, right? Yeah, and Daredevil and Deadpool. Okay. Yeah. Where he, he he wears a Cavalier cap, he has a gun, Yep. he has a cape. I don't think Fool Killer has a cape, but yeah, he's a bit crazy. Crazier than Fool Killer, though, I think. Yes. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, Madcap was a member of that Deadpool team as well. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. This this guy, honestly, this version of Fool Killer, what we've seen of him so far, and if you didn't pick it up from the issue, he's got this obsession with with killing people that he deems foolish. It's almost like a better, even more self aware version of the Hangman from Werewolf by Night. Yes, to the point where I'm expecting people to write into the letter column telling about how he's the true hero of the book. Right, right. But but that's the thing. Like, but part of it is I think Gerber just is better at capturing the kind of wink at the audience I know exactly what I'm doing with this guy kind of thing. Like, in terms of critiquing something very specific about superhero comics. Yes. And in fact, I think where Gerber succeeds here, and I think, like, Wolfman failed, is Wolfman was too subtle with it. Yes. To the point where it just went over a bunch of people's heads. Yeah. Yeah. And what's also wild, just wild, is... This is what, March 74? Yeah. Yeah, March 74. The Punisher debuted last month. Oh, yeah, he did. Like, the Fool Killer, who, by, for all intents and purposes, could be considered a parody of the Punisher, is literally one month after the debut of the Punisher. Well, I mean, the Punisher himself is a parody of that Destroyer guy, whatever his name is. Sure, yes. And a reaction to, like, the Vietnam-era anti-hero type. Yeah. But, but but yeah, I, I just think it is very interesting that, like, within a month of The Punisher, other writers at Marvel are already doing like, parodies and knockoffs of The Punisher. The thing about The Punisher, the, and the, I think that's what a lot of people who are big Punisher fans seem to forget about The Punisher. He's is a villain? That he, yeah, he's a villain, and he's a parody. That's true. That's, because the, the Destroyer, like, the Golden Age Destroyer also wore a skull on his chest, right? Yes. Yeah, like, he, he had, like, the, the sort of blue and red or purple and red outfit with a skull on his chest. No, there's a different Destroyer that the Punisher is a parody of. Okay. It's from a novel series. Oh, okay. 
I was thinking of the Golden Age uh, Timely Comics character. Yeah, there's a different character. Well, because there's the, the Remo Williams destroyer. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, where he's like a former cop who gets recruited into becoming an assassin. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay, yeah. I have never read those books. I only know the uh, the movie version, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Yes. Which features Fred Ward, uh, Joel Grey in Yellowface, Wil- Wilfred Brimley, and future Starfleet Captain Kate Mulgrew. But, but I do think there is a fundamental misunderstanding, whether deliberate or not, of the Punisher as a character. Like He is not someone to aspire to. He is no. someone, he's someone in, in some ways to pity because of what he has lost and what he can't let go of. But, but that doesn't necessarily make the way he processes that grief right or virtuous. I mean, Jerry Conway has said this. Israel said, do not idolize the Punisher. He is not yeah. to be idolized. We've talked about before, we're not Punisher fans. But the best Punisher stories, such as they are, are the ones that get that. The ones that recognize the lines he is crossing and and, and portray that in a tragic way rather than an aspirational way. I guess. Yeah, you're right. <sighs> But anyway, this isn't a Punisher podcast. No, no. This And what we have here is Fool Killer, who is honestly way more fun than the, fun, than the Punisher. Way more fun. For one thing, he's got a jaunty hat. He does. He's got a Zorro hat and a Zorro mask. It's... it's. I like Fool Killer. He's silly. He is a, now, he is still murderous, and that is wrong. He is not a good guy. No, no. Like, he, he shoots down a helicopter full of... Evacuees. <laughs> Those evacuees just happen to be there at a perfect time to get shot down by Fool Killer for dramatic <laughs> emphasis. It's like, oh, there is no reason for them to be there. <laughs> Although, we do get the great scene on page 18 where Ruth and Rory are stranded in the middle of a swamp without gas, and this guy comes along and gives them a can of gas, and it's so obviously Fool Killer. Yes. Fool Killer, who is at that same point hunting for Richard Rory. Yes, yes. So in case it was not pointed out enough to you earlier, the Fool Killer himself is a fool. Not only that, but like he's driving the same car. Same car. Like, it's very clearly the same car. Yep. Now, now is he? Is it foolish, or is is there something rigged about that gas can? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. No, no. I think it's supposed to be a. Wah, 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 wah. Oh, like, like a, yeah, like a misconnections kind of thing. Yeah. See, isn't it funny? He's looking for Richard Rory, he finds Richard Rory, but there's no it's Richard Rory. Ha 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 That is funny. And I know enough about where the story is going to know why that might be, but but I'll, I will leave that to the next time we get to, to a man thing issue. Um, <clears throat> I will also say, in addition to just the, the fun of how ridiculous and over the top the fool killer is, Another thing that's great is the way that Gerber and Valmyrick escalate the ongoing war between Man-Thing and the Everglades alligators. <laughs> because it is tradition that you have a Man-Thing issue where he fights an alligator, but now he's fighting, like, ten alligators, and that's awesome. Yes. It's, it's really funny, though. Yes, yes. Like... It's a great splash page that we see here with Manthing and the Alligators. It's good. <laughs> Where he's just swinging one by the tail. And of course, the issue ends with 
the death of the man thing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing that um, even if the numbering continues, this book will be retitled to Fool Killer. Yeah, which, okay, that seems interesting. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it, it's fun. And I, I, another thing, just to, to go back to how ridiculous Fool Killer is, I think my favorite thing about Fool Killer is the close-up of his business card. <laughs> That's a nice business card. Fool Killer, e pluribus unum. You have 24 hours to live. Use them to repent or be forever damned to the pits of hell where goeth all fools. Today is the last day of the rest of your life. Use it wisely or die a fool. Where we see that Fool Killer has this kind of odd religious bent to him. Yes, he, he seems to think that his laser gun is a purification ray. Also, he seems to have some possibly vague omnipotent, omniscient powers where he knows things he should not know. Hmm. Like, he figures out that Ted Salas is the man thing. Right. Well, he says that he did research. Like, he says he was the only one who bothered to look into what happened. But even then, when he runs into the bikers seemingly randomly in the middle of the road, he calls them by their full names. That's true. And why would he know that? Even if he knows who Richard Rory is, why would he know these people that Rory just met last issue? Yes. Although I will say, these two bikers are stand-up guys. I mean, they literally give their lives to protect Richard Rory, which is, I mean, that's admirable. Considering they just met him yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So, there you go. It's a good issue, and it's a good issue that does it walks the line between the crazy cosmic fantasy stuff that was very much part of Gerber's first issues on the book with the more horror-inflected man-thing-in-the-swamp stuff that came before that. Like, this book has a little bit of both. Yep. Which, it, it, it's a good book. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's Steve Gerber at his best, and I look forward to more of it. Yeah, and and I, I think by far is the strongest book we're talking about today. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, I will say, just because I've been calling these out ever since I recognized them as a thing, there's a Marvel value stamp in this issue as well, and it is for Kazar, yep. who we last talked about in an issue featuring Man-Thing. Yep, we did. We certainly did. Way back when. <laughs> and speaking of fool killers, don't yourself be a fool. Make sure you go ahead and send us some feedback at tombofideas at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at tombofideas. We are, of course, a proud member of the Cinepunks podcast group. Trey, tell them a little more about Cinepunks. Yeah, so we are located on the internet at Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. We are part of a great collective of podcasts, which include the flagship Cinepunks show, Horror Business, a great collective of shows called Cinema Smorgasbord. We've got Black Sun Dispatches. There's all kinds of great stuff covering the spectrum from movies to comics to music, all kinds of cool stuff. So be sure to check out Cinepunks.com to find not just our episodes, but also a wide range of other podcasts. Definitely check it out. Anyway, guys, like I said, that's been it for Tomb of Ideas. You guys stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior. <laughs>